everybody. Welcome to the DeFi Mafia podcast. We are here today with second time guest, uh, Jordi Alexander. He was here once before uh, to debate Ohm with me, and I guess he won that debate. Uh, you know, I'll have to <laughs> give, give that to him. Um, it was a long time ago. That was actually our second ever episode, so thank you for coming on that one. I've uh, done a lot since then. Um, how have you been in the last, uh, that was about eight months ago since that happened. Um, pretty much at the top or just, just off the top. Uh, how have things yeah. been for you since then? You know, it's been dodging bullets, trying to survive with all the explosions happening around me. Thankfully, you know, still, still getting through it. Um, it's a lot of opportunity coming up, I think with, uh, with the merge. So there's a lot of attention going to the Ethereum ecosystem at the moment. Um, Obviously, we've seen a big bubble pop and a re-rating of so many projects, and it's it's good in some ways. Definitely, um, you know, re- reasonable valuations. If you're looking at a longer-term time horizon, you have a much better chance of getting a good return now versus like you know six months ago, uh, where like even you know on the private side, like VC, everything was just so overvalued. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a few risks as well. Uh, macro side, like we really could be seeing a really bad recession so uh, so let's let's start with that i wanted to start with macro and then i wanted to ask you about eth merge and all these different uh crypto specific things but macro there's a lot of places to start i think i i in planning i think we'll just probably start with the fed themselves um you know inflation is 9.1 percent as of the last cpi print um not transitory it doesn't look like do you think that's going to be the highest CPI print or do you think that uh, we're just going to see sustained inflation? Like, what do you think is going to happen over the next few months? I mean, it's so high that even if it, it is the high point, I don't think that the narrative of inflation has peaked. It's all over. It's all in the past. We're OK now. Like, it's all one way downhill. I think it's completely wrong, even if we just see like five, six percent for, for right. the next year or two. Um, people forget but very like early uh, in, in like, you know, this year, even like last year, you know, this was completely unfathomable that we would, we would reach these kind of levels. I mean, I remember in uh, 2021, I was saying we would get four or 5% and I was just being laughed out of the room. It's like, of course, that's not going to happen. Like it's not going past like 2.5. Like, there are structural reasons why it's impossible. And now we're at nine and it's just because it's every month we go up by one. People just get used to it, and it's like the the, the frog boiling in the water. But nine point one is is kind of hard to believe. I mean, I'm sure our you know our grandparents saw something like this in in the seventies, whatever. But this this is like uncharted territory for our lifetime. And um, I think the Fed is still a little bit hesitant to do what's necessary. I think in the end they'll have to do what's necessary. Um, but Obviously, they're not doing a good job right now in terms of their mandate of keeping price stability. So, you know, one, I would say the hopium going around right now is like, oh, there will be a Fed pivot. Um, What do you think about that whole narrative? Well, I mean, at some point, they'll stop increasing rates. Um, Just by definition, they'll, they'll reach a tightening point. That's not right now. They'll, they'll definitely have to go above three. Um, they may or may not get to four. We'll see about that. Uh, I think, you know, it's kind of evenly balanced in terms of whether they, they reach 4% or not. Um, so, I mean, a pivot in terms of a slowdown of, of rate increases, they just can't keep going 75 bips every meeting, obviously. 
Now, will they start doing QE again? Will they start printing money again? Will they start cutting rates again? Um, I mean, I think that's that's really bad hopium. There's there's it's, it would really have to take a global recession of bigger than 2008 for them to like get to that level, which is possible. It's possible, mm-hmm. and and I think it will pivot at some point, but not for the next call it six to nine months. I think after that, depending on how things are it's it's possible do you think like what happens in the scenario where we do get to like three and a half four percent and inflation is still like seven percent six percent what do we do there um they're not going to go harder than that i think they'll try to wait it out as long as they possibly can they they're not going to really go to five or anything like that they might try other policies they might start cooperating with the government and, and looking at uh, tax policies, that type of thing to, to slow down inflation. The problem with inflation is it conflates two completely separate scenarios. You have like supply side issues, you have demand side issues, and we have both mm-hmm. right now, which is why we have this unfathomable 9%. It's probably like four and a half percent from each side is kind of what, what's happening. Um, they can't fix everything at once. They don't have like perfect tools. One thing they can fix is the demand side. That's mainly going to be by creating a little bit of a asset deflation, like stock prices getting kind of the air taken out of them. That kind of filters through the economy. Like you see like a lot of people who have 401ks, a lot of people who are getting stock-based compensation from tech companies, um, you know, who are the ones buying all these like super expensive houses in California that are, you know, going for millions when it's just a, a small like a little hut in, uh, in in the East Bay. Those people will not bid as hard as they are for assets that will eventually filter through. Then you have supply side. I mean, obviously Biden has been trying to um, negotiate some oil cutbacks of gas stations and like, which is all obviously absurd. Like, anybody can uh, see that. Um, they're trying to do international policy. They're trying to go to Saudis, trying to go to like different countries and um, increase supply somehow. That doesn't seem to be uh, an avenue that's going to bear fruit. So ultimately, we'll need to see Europe do something about it. Maybe Germany turns on their power plants, or their nuclear power plants. Um, that could be one of the solutions. Uh, but the thing is, like, we have time lags with these things. Like in the US, mm-hmm. if you want to get more investment in oil, that thing's going to take a very long time to even like uh, bear fruit. And once they stop producing oil in certain wells, they take a very long time to be able to get back online. You can't just flip a switch. It's not, it's not like turning the tap on or off. So a lot of the structural issues on the supply side are not going away. Um, and, and so both sides are a problem. On, on the demand side, like Apple and Amazon just reported this week, right? And they both gave like positive guidance for Q3 uh are they wrong or or like why are consumers still spending money even when it seems like people are worried about inflation um there are still a lot of savings um both corporate savings on uh, balance sheets of corporations as well as personal savings are still rather high historically mm-hmm. um so there is a little bit of a cushion where people will still spend money until they reach a, a certain point. Now, obviously, that doesn't apply to all the population. There are a lot of people who 
especially in Europe right now with um, the winter coming along, are going to have energy problems. They will have a tough time meeting these insane energy bills that are coming, not just like in France, Germany, but also in the UK, um, you know, 50% up, you know, thousands of pounds, which is very significant amounts of money for a lot of people. So I would say ultimately this comes down to an issue of inequality. There's, there's still going to be some people that are doing very well. There's some people that are going to be struggling. Um, I think it's going to lead to a lot of discontent and the government will keep stepping in with creative solutions. They're going to do UBI. They're going to do all kinds of stuff, specifically trying to keep the, the people suffering afloat. Um, and I do think that hurts asset prices in terms of equities because they will try to extract more profits through taxes from corporations. Um, now, I'm saying this from a game theoretical point of view. Sometimes there's like two completely different modes of thought. One is like, what, what's the game theory? What's the equilibrium? And, and this is, seems to be the clear equilibrium. They tax corporations and they give kind of benefits to make kind of people happy and, and, and keep like the, the cohesion, <laughs> the social cohesion intact. Now, how that happens is a tactical direction and to understand the tactics it's not about game theory. It's about understanding kind of the specific personalities and people involved and the specific modes of government. And each country has its own dynamics. Um, obviously in the U S with the Senate being 50, 50, but with Manchin, um, you know, being very anti-tax as, as a kind of right wing, uh, Democrat, if you want to call him that mm -hmm. it is very hard to get corporate tax taxes increased. Uh, we saw that, you know, when they, when they tried the first time, um, so how exactly this is all going to pan out and, and how this equilibrium gets reached, we'll have to see. But one way or another, um, you know, there's a magnetic pull and we eventually get to this redistribution. Yeah, I want to ask you about UBI in a second because I, I did read your your Twitter thread about that. Um, you've mentioned Europe a couple of times. Uh, obviously, we saw the euro has come down quite a bit versus the dollar. Um, how bad are things going to get in Europe, do you think, over the next like year? Uh, it's hard to know. The The uncertainty is quite high in terms of how bad the energy problem is going to be. And that's that's where a lot of it stems. But in general, I think Europe is in for a tougher time than the US by quite a while, uh, quite a mile. Like I, I think the, the political unity um, is under question with Italy now having to undergo a political transition that will make it less favorable to, um, you know, improving their debt. So right now the European Union is trying to keep the spread between German bonds and Italian bonds rather close. Mm -hmm. um, now, as we know from history and what we've seen a thousand times is like when you artificially try to kind of intervene into a free market, at some point your will gets tested and, you know, usually that breaks at some point. So if in reality, Germany is a much safer uh, you know, government to pay back their bonds in Italy, you can't artificially force it. They've, they've managed to do it so far. Um, and then I think Draghi kind of being the, uh, the person in charge in Italy for a while bailed them, bailed them out. But now we're about to have a second round and knowing Europe quite well, um, I think there's a very high chance that we start to see the monetary experiment, at least the Euro, um, start to have the first defectors. Uh, by which I mean, I do think it will take a while before the euro stops existing. But the first step is certain countries 
uh, like Italy will have um, too much of an advantage to drop out of the euro because what they can do is just revert back to their own currency, like the lira, the Italian lira. Mm -hmm. They pay back their bonds in lira. They say, "Sorry, guys, like we don't we don't do euros anymore. We we owe you a billion euros. Here's here's some lira um, that we just printed, and um, you know that that's going to be our way out of this." And then you might see other countries follow suit. So I think Europe is going to have all kinds of turmoil over the next couple that's, of years. It's really interesting you say that because I've had a lot of conversations with people where I've been pretty bearish Europe for a while. Um, I just don't know how bearish to get is kind of my thing. Like like you said, you think the euro may not even exist at some point. And like, what, what would the time frame for that be? Uh, well, I think, you know, the, the, the core countries will keep it going for a long time. You know, when you look at Germany, France, Holland, uh, Belgium, like there's there's certain countries that their economies are similar enough that they can potentially have an economic union. But when you start including Southern European countries with completely different um, market cycles, completely different like debt to GDP situations, you know, how is Italy, Greece, Spain, Portugal ultimately supposed to go along with higher rates now, which is what, you know, Germans are pushing in order to get inflation under control when their economy can't handle it. Um, so when you have two completely different correct interest rate settings for different parts of Europe, and they're forced to have one, it was a great idea, great experiment. Let's unify the whole continent. Ultimately, hopefully the political union stays because they still need that for security reasons, as we've seen right. with Russia. Mm -hmm. But the economic union will have to basically stay at a level of policy rather than currency, I think, ultimately. Do you think a political union can be anywhere as strong if there's not those economic ties? There, There is if there's a, if there's a real threat that's considered to uh, exist. So in times of crisis. What about between yeah. themselves? Um, what, what do you mean? Well, obviously the big throw would be Russia, but like obviously Europe, uh, all these countries in the EU, uh, you know, I know the last century has been pretty good, but before that, uh, you know, there's been many, many, many conflicts. Uh, do you think if the EU were to split up, we'd see a lot more conflicts again, or do you think they would try to keep things mostly, uh, uh, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't neutral. think we will, I don't think we would, we would see any European to European conflicts anymore. It, it's no longer the center of the world. The countries are much more similar than the other big players that exist in the, in the global stage. Um, even if they disagree on economic matters, um, no, I, I don't see any scenario where like Europe goes to war within itself. Yeah, war, yeah, okay. War is probably out of the out of the question. But anyway, it was just a thought. Um, I mean, okay. it's possible. Like, if you start seeing different, uh, no, because even all of Europe is pro-Western, so that they will, you yeah. know, even if there's a multipolar world, they will still all gravitate towards the U.S. rather than you know, right. China. And, and the U.S. wouldn't wouldn't let that happen in in, in all reality. Um, so for for the ECB, like, what what do you anticipate their measures are going to be uh, like over the next six months? Because obviously they just started finally raising rates, but as you said, it's not going to be very easy for them. Like, what do you think they're going to do? Um, pray. I mean, if you see Lagarde, <laughs> you like the way she answers questions. Like, what are you going to do with inflation? Oh, it, it'll come. It'll come. It'll come. Yeah. I how how it is come. it gonna come? Uh, just, 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 just wait. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, it's 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 hard to um, have sympathy for the central bankers. They, they they do have this kind of ostrich tendency to just kind of put their head in the sand. We've seen it time and time again. It, it works sometimes when things just kind of blow over. Right now, I think Europe needs to come to uh, terms that, first of all, the green agenda um, is kind of putting itself in, in, in this situation where they are fully reliant on foreign oil, foreign gas um, to even make it through like a single winter. I think that's eventually going to force them to change perspectives. Um, Europeans are not dumb. I mean, they are very intelligent. They're very educated. You know, these people will eventually come around and, and make some changes. So I don't think all hope is lost in terms of Europe. They'll go through a hard next year. They will go into recession. Um, but ultimately, I think they start having a better energy policy. They start, you know, there, there's a dark path and there's a light path. I mean, uh, there's a way where Europe starts to make the kind of changes that Macron is trying to make in France, trying to make it pro-business, pro-innovation, pro-startup. It's mm -hmm. a, It's been 50 years of going the other direction. So, um, you know, socialism and benefits and like taxes and all this stuff. So we'll see. It's, it's hard to know if they make the right decisions. But in terms of the ECB themselves, they will have to raise rates a little bit more um, until like the inflation numbers come in. But um, yeah, I, I think we'll just have inflation, debasement, and, and all kinds of issues with the euro. And then quickly, I mean, there's so many things we can talk about. Obviously, in Asia, you have, I don't, I, I mean, just this week, we saw uh, potential trouble with Taiwan, uh, with China. Uh, I don't know exactly if that's a nothing or if that's something. Um, then you have Japan. Like, there's so many different. Uh, uncertainties globally right now are there any specific ones that you are keeping a close eye on um the taiwan thing definitely it's been years i've been keeping a tab on it i mean i've been living in singapore so i've been hearing about you know this threat for a long time it's mm -hmm. been on the radar it's nothing new i don't think anything is imminent if anything uh, russia's invasion of ukraine and how that went probably is giving the chinese a bit of pause in terms of their timeline like they're gonna want to be a lot more careful and planned out when they make a move um, like Russia did. Mm -hmm. I do think they eventually do make that move. Um, but it, it could be years before they, they think that all the ducks in a row, they, they might need a different U.S. president, different policy globally. Um, I don't think that the circumstances that we've seen this year make it more likely that, that they will push quickly. And, and it, it is something I've been um, seeing on, on the horizon. Um, you know, the big things in, in Asia is obviously like Japan is in a bad shape. Uh, we see the yen really, really in free fall. The, the government refuses to change that, um, change bonds. They're, they're still trying to keep um, 10 years below a quarter base, um, quarter percent. Um, so the, the biggest risk I see out of Asia is, is China. I think the building uh, real estate sector that is starting to have a crisis with a lot of the mortgages, a lot of the building companies, um, a lot of the local municipalities that were doing 99 year leases and relying on that income, which is really kind of like the, the core of their um, expenditure, are starting to have um, these filter through problems where, you know, it overexpanded, it was too big of a bubble, they were building things um, that didn't actually have demand. But there's a lot of unfinished construction, kind of what we saw in Dubai uh, 10 years ago. 
And that's the kind of problem that I think the government is going to have to deal with for the next few years. Um, you know, on the plus side, this probably keeps keeps them out of Taiwan, keeps them out of expansionist policy. Uh, but if China is having problems, they are going to be less of a consumer uh, growth potential for a lot of the multinational companies than they have been in, in the last mm. 10 years. What does, like... China's real estate market, quote unquote, like breaking, what does that look like uh, for them and then globally? Uh, I mean, you know, we saw a, a while back with a lot of the commercial paper for um, for some of the larger uh, companies, the construction developers that were starting to not get paid out. And who ho- who owns that <laughs> uh, paper is, is, is a question that matters. You know, Tether was said to own a lot of Evergrande paper. And of course... You know, they eventually denied it and, and it seems like they're okay. Um, but, you know, this is the way contagion happens. Generally, it's through like debt. Who owns a debt? And then they're in trouble. We've seen this a million times. I mean, uh, whenever there is bailouts needing to happen, if people have to take care cuts, that just kind of percolates through the entire banking sector, through like, you know, the, the creditors. So much like what we've seen in, in crypto, like crypto is like a microcosm of, of all these types of situations when... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when Celsius goes bust, it affects millions of people who had their savings there. And it's exactly the same dynamic. Okay. Interesting. So like how bad will it be? Like, I guess the contagion outside of China, like, do you think it will majorly, majorly hit the U S or would it be more like, yeah, we'll feel it, but it's hurting other countries more. Like, what do you think? Uh, It won't be. That won't be the reason why the U.S. goes into recession. It'll just be like an extra kind of headwind into like a lot of the multinationals being able to recover. I don't think that that's going to be ultimately the, the cause of, of like U.S. recession. A lot of Asian countries will feel it. Um, China, of course, slowing down is is going to be a problem for growth going forward for a lot of places. Uh, but I don't see that as like the global risk. I don't think that their economy is intertwined enough with us and europe that like those countries necessarily will um feel it that hard okay back on the us you mentioned uh we met we talked about ubi earlier and you wrote a twitter thread talking about how you think the us will do some form of ubi uh but more like targeted specifically at lower class uh can you explain a little bit why you think they'll do that and and what it'll look like yeah, again, we're going into kind of like the, the um, what is the incentives of the politicians and, and the incentives of the central bankers. So their incentives on paper are, you know, keeping their mandates, protecting the constitution, price stability, like all these kind of things. But at the end of the day, they need to keep 51% of the population happy. Like that's mm-hmm. that's sort of like the right way to look at it. And even central bankers who are supposed to be like independent um, the way that Powell earned his position is because the politically uh, the, the political designation that happened through Trump or through you know um, whoever the president ends up being, you know Biden obviously at the moment, is very much based on trying to fit their political agenda. So for Trump, it was let's pick the most dovish guy out of everyone so that he can boost the stock market so that I can get votes. Right. So Powell was the ultimate dove. He was more dovish than even Yellen, uh, based on his record. 
And that's kind of what earned him the position. It wasn't out of merit. It was like purely who is the most dovish. And you see that a lot of kind of the other members like Kashkari and a lot of the other Fed members, there's periods where they try to out-dub each other and just say the most insane like dovish things purely out of theater so that they can kind of earn, earn these like political points. Um, regardless of that, though, um, ultimately, if the goal is to keep enough people happy and enough of the population in agreement with each other that, you know, we're allowed to continue this form of government that we have, um, you have to avoid huge riots and huge discontent and um, the kind of issues that we're about to see with, you know, 10% inflation that's hitting grocery items, that's hitting gas, like really everyday items that are affecting the entire population, um, those, th those things will have to get addressed. And you'll have to make those people happy because their wages are not going to go up as fast as, um, as inflation is because it's such a rapid rate. We're having more automation happening. So, you know, for just like a normal low-income worker or even like a teacher or something like that, it's just impossible to find the budget to keep up. So what the government has to do is step in and provide benefits to those people to make up for robbing them through higher prices. So uh, to balance it out, uh, what we're seeing in a lot of countries already, we're seeing in Scotland, UK, um, you know, in, in kind of places like Australia and New Zealand as well, and now in California with Gavin Newsom, is you start having payments that are supposed to cancel out prices that are increasing. So uh, it can be like energy payments, it could be uh, inflation relief payments, as Newsom called them. Mm -hmm. But this is the type of thing that there is only one way that this goes, and it's just more, 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 more. It's going to be very politically popular, even if, you know, there's always a population that wants to, like, you know, belt tighten and do austerity. But we've seen that even in Europe, austerity in the end does not win. Like somebody has to actually just send out checks um, or give benefits or do some kind of subsidies. I think we're going to get some very creative subsidies of, of certain certain sectors. So are you, are you saying that like inflation sub like 3% is basically over? Um, look, what I'm saying is there's been so much inflation over the last 18 months that needs to get absorbed that even if inflation month to month would suddenly go to zero and stay there for, you know, some amount of time, we've seen still like 20% increases in everything where people don't have 20% more money. So even if inflation goes away, I mean, the reality is I think we do slow down inflation, then it picks up again. It, we'll see sub three and then we'll see it fly past three again because they're just going to be, it's going to be like, uh, you know, backing up one way and let's avoid inflation and then let's, let's avoid recession. And then, so it will fluctuate. I'm not saying that every month is going to be 1% inflation like we've had for the last several months. But ultimately, even if it slows down, you have to absorb so much price increases. Like, it's not, it's not like it's going negative. It's not like the, the cost of like, you know, hamburger is going to go back down. Mm -hmm. It's just going to stay where it is for a while. But people still are struggling where it is. And right now they have savings. Once the savings run out, then you still have a really big problem. So I would look at it less about is inflation ever going to come down and more about the cost of living has gone up so much and will probably continue to go up in spurts. 
that there will need to be some political solution as well. Okay. And as far as let's go to the investment side, um, not asking like when's the bottom, obviously, but like what would you look for to find somewhat of like a bottom? Um, on the investment side, what I'm trying to do is, of course, be disciplined. You know, we've seen like what lack of discipline does to you given all the recent months in crypto um, and a lot of the key players. So I think this is the kind of cliche situation where you you don't try to trade the gray areas too much. Like right now, I think we're in a gray area. Uh, you know, I, I, I think quite a few people managed to write up some of this current um, upward trajectory and risk assets that we're seeing. That's great. Um, I think now we're in the gray area where, yeah, it might, it might go another 10, 20%. Like there is still potentially some upside, but we can quickly collapse back down. And I think there will be a retest of the lows in equities, uh, potentially in crypto, maybe not in something like ETH. Um, you know, once you have a 75% rally, you may never get back to like, you know, triple digit ETH. Uh, that, that's a different story. But in general, I think for most risk assets, we, we, will, we, will, have, we will have a double dip. Um, the current hopium of, um, you know, they're done. They're just going to start easing now. I think <laughs> really misunderstands what um, inflation prints of 7 8% for many, many months to come are going to force them to do. So from an investment standpoint, even if the lows are in, which I, I think it's quite likely in certain assets are in, like in ETH, for example, I do think they're in. Um, possibly in Bitcoin as well. I'm being cautious, uh, taking profits, waiting for another dip. And I'm not really going to be very, very aggressive on buying that dip until it's clear that, okay, like now there is enough pain. Because, you know, we've seen very recently, I don't know uh, if, um, exactly when this is going to come out, but, you know, very recently the Fed hiked rates, 75 bips. But what Powell said in the conference was dovish enough that interest rates just collapsed. You know, the right. 10 year went from like above three down back towards two and a half. So that's like a loosening of conditions. So he was supposed to tighten conditions, get inflation under control. And instead, people kind of read his words in a way that he signified that, you know, he's looking at a multitude of factors and they're not willing to commit on further uh, rate rises. And so he's loosening conditions and equities go up. That's loosening conditions even further. That puts money in a lot of people's pockets when that happens. So that's not going to solve the demand side of inflation. And the supply side of inflation is nowhere near being solved. So, um, yeah, there's a double dip. I'm, I'm, I might be wrong, uh, but I'm quite confident that this is not, it's not like up only from, from, from right now. And we are in a gray area. Right. If as far as the double dip, like you mentioned, BTC, we got to what was the lowest we got like 18, 17 around there? 17.5. Um, 17.5. Do you think that even if we double dip, it'll be like roughly around there again? Or do you think we still have new lows to set in? I think it'll be roughly there. Um, for ETH, I think unless there are more technical issues being feared, like, you know, there, there's talk now about. ETH1 versus ETH2, and if some of the miners try to like promote ETH1, and, and like this, it's a very interesting game theory uh, situation going on. Um, we can get into that maybe later, but um, I think the ETH lows probably are going to be a bit higher than last time, maybe like 1200. 
and on Bitcoin, yeah, maybe maybe like back to eighteen. Okay. Oh, as far as like crypto in general, Bitcoin. I mean, I guess. Uh, do you do? You, how much do you separate Bitcoin versus crypto? Yeah, a lot. I do more than most people. I think Bitcoin is a macro asset. All the macro managers, all the macro thinkers and analysts, and you know, central bankers. They, when they talk about crypto, they're only talking about Bitcoin. And that's the threat that they see to their currencies. That's the kind of instrument that is being used by activists and kind of ideological players as a, um, as a way to get out of the system, to get out of the central banking system. Of course, like, you know, there are some people in the ETH community that try to promote this ultrasound money thing. But um, I would say that's way smaller than, you know, Bitcoin's use as, as, a, as a monetary instrument. So I separate it out a lot. I think Bitcoin has a chance to take on a new narrative once stagflation really kicks in. Um, we're still in the hopium phase. I think Bitcoin does well once we're through the hopium phase and people realize that we are in a bad recession and they can't do anything to fix it. We're going to be stuck here for a while. Then I think that could kind of come into its own as a very important macro asset. But right now, I think it's not yet managed to achieve that right okay that was my next question was basically as of now crypto bitcoin it's all pretty much just risk assets at what point does that change especially for bitcoin right like what what do you think specifically you would have to see where you say okay i think bitcoin's really going to become its own thing now um you start seeing more and more people talk about it in, in a certain narrative it spreads kind of like wildfire like people are like this central banking system is really screwing us. What's the alternatives out there? How do we get out of this system? People have to start complaining about central bankers, like normal main, like just people that you mm. see like around you that don't know that much about, you know, all this kind of macroeconomic stuff. They'll start blaming, you know, the central bankers and, and the government. Maybe they won't even know about the central bank, but they'll blame kind of government policies for what they're doing to the currency, for the prices going up. It won't be like, oh, yeah, sure, it's just Russia or something like that. Like people will complain and look for something to vent their anger or like vent their desire to escape. Um, and that's really kind of what I'm looking for. I think the narrative has to build from there. Do you think that happens bottoms up in terms of like, you know, the, 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 biggest economies versus like developing world? Do you think it starts in the developing world first? The reason I, in some ways, yes, you know, obviously that's already happened. Like places like Argentina, places like Turkey, they have a lot of crypto adoption, like even places in Africa. The reason I hesitate to fully say yes is because even if it starts there in terms of people, you have to also look at notional. What's the mm -hmm. dollar amount that actually goes in, flows in? And these countries are not simply rich enough. Like, yeah, Venezuela might love Bitcoin, but how much do Venezuelans really have to move the, move the needle versus, you know, some you know big macro hedge funds in the U.S. that can just buy billion, billions of dollars, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it's going to be both sides, uh, one through just more people and one through kind of more dollars. What do you think about is one of the problems with Bitcoin, it, at least in I would say definitely in this last cycle, is that on the speculation side, everyone just goes to altcoins because it's like higher beta. Right. And then Bitcoin doesn't get the bid. It probably should. What, do you think that's going to continue to happen 
or do you think we'll see a shift back towards like Bitcoin dominance again? Yeah, it comes it comes back to the value of Bitcoin, which is a philosophical value. If people are just trying to make money um, and they're trying to gamble, especially gamble, like the way of there's making money in terms of like, you know, maybe make a 20 year investment that that makes sense. And there is let me make like a 20 hour investment that I want to flip quickly. So if people are stuck in the gambling mentality, which is obviously what we had when all the checks were going out last year, then, you know, it's just human nature. You can't fight it. I've never tried or imagined that you can stop greed. Like greed is such an innate human instinct. Like, oh, this thing's going to pump. Let's go there. So that's always going to be its own thing. You, You can't ever stop that. But on the other hand, there is also like an ideological weight to Bitcoin that altcoins just simply don't have or can't really get. Um, and I think a lot of people who were investing in Bitcoin initially were just doing it for the returns. And those same people just flipped to other coins because they saw higher returns. Um, obviously, there's a lot of talk right now about the, the maxis, the Bitcoin maxis and, and how toxic they are. And um, I kind of forgive them for their toxicity because they, you know, ideology sometimes takes extremes and, and they do say a lot of stupid things. Um, but I, I kind of understand that if you're trying to maintain, you know, a differentiation between all the other coins and just kind of keep a, um, a visibility publicly that this is not the same as like, you know, Bitcoin gold or Bitcoin God or like all these other type of things that people can just spin up. It does, it does kind of take a lot of banding up together and, and like being like very forceful on it. Um, I don't like, you know, the current visible Bitcoiners that are that are very um, against, you know, your thing needs to fail for, for mine to succeed. Uh, I don't think that's fully true. But um, on the Bitcoin side, a new narrative needs, needs to form. I think people need to come into it from an area of looking for an escape rather than an area of, I just want to gamble and make money quickly. Is, is the end game for Bitcoin, or I mean, end game might be a bit too far out, but like the next decade for Bitcoin becoming a store of value or like what, what is kind of the, what would you hope to see? I mean, I have like a, I have a view that I haven't seen anyone um, say at all. And so I'll, I'll start writing some um, thought pieces about it and, and try to explain to people what I see. Um, I don't see Bitcoin achieving, you know, hyper Bitcoinization in the sense of like everything is Bitcoin and like governments own Bitcoin and, and the companies own Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. I still see it as a uh, retail asset that is sort of a global piggy bank that people save their money into that piggy bank across the world. They have access to it. It's censorship proof. It has like a very strong attribute as a piggy bank, as a global piggy bank. Um, right now, you know, we need to understand that if too many people try to withdraw from the piggy bank at the same time, then you're just kind of getting these lower prices for your for your piece of the piggy bank. Um, if there's a panic and you want your 1% back, you'll get lower than if everyone is trying to buy and you want your 1% back. So a lot of those dynamics need to get sorted out and people need to understand what they're doing when they're putting money in Bitcoin. Um, you know, they're really just trying to maintain their purchasing power. And this, you know, utopia where Bitcoin becomes, um, you know, the, the global currency that is used for every single uh, country and like every single company, 
I, I, I don't think that that's ever going to happen, unfortunately. Okay. Yeah, we, we agree on that. Let's switch over to ETH. The ETH merge is likely coming in September. Um, you know, there's a lot of different uh, narratives that are surrounding this, but on the most basic level, do you think this is like long-term very bullish for ETH or, or are you more neutral? Uh, it's honestly, it's just amazing that it's great if it, if it just happens, you know, it's something that's been talked about for so long and it's been getting delayed for forever. It's become a meme that I think the, the decline to three digit ETH coincided not, with, you know, the general decline that we're seeing, but also with um, fear that things were just going to get delayed again until next year and it would, it would just get mm -hmm. kicked down the road. When a date was finally set, um, assuming it goes <laughs> smoothly and, and that date ends up being the date and, and it's all good and done. Um, it's obviously a positive catalyst. I mean, there is no reason for there to be another proof of work chain um, when Bitcoin is already kind of the biggest one there. It's definitely much better for, for Ethereum to kind of stake its own territory, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, and it will have a lot of attractive features that I like a lot. I think miners, you know, when you look at it, um, if you don't need the, the mining for censorship resistance like Bitcoin does, then all you're doing is paying for security that goes energy expenditure that has to just get redeemed. So people have to kind of earn their Ethereum and spend it. Now what's going to happen is instead all the MEV and, on, and like all the kind of benefit of um, staking and securing the network will go to people who have the coin instead of people who want to sell it. And these people presumably will want to get more and more of it um they'll, they'll just want more eth so it will be very po i mean it, we've already seen that it, it's obviously positive catalyst for the price um i have been a little bit of a skeptic on this narrative that the yield from eth is somehow going to be this black hole that's going to suck you know all the assets in because you're getting like risk-free yield that's mm -hmm. you know five percent whatever it's going to be end up being um that's a little bit yes uh, I've kind of made it very clear that you have to separate things that kind of accrue value and things that don't accrue value. And paying staking yield doesn't accrue value. It's just it's just giving coins to stakers versus people who don't stake. It just forces people to stake money. So you're going to get more coins, more ETH, but it's increasing the supply. Now they're going to say, well, the supply is not increasing because it's also getting burnt. And we can try to like make it so that it's roughly the same and so the supply is staying constant. Yeah, that's true. But the burning is what's creating value. It's because people are willing to pay ETH as gas and that gets burned. So the staking doesn't need to be done. Like theoretically, you just let ETH be deflationary and that would also accrue value to people. And it would be equally attractive to hold ETH in both scenarios. Like you're not creating money by giving staking yield. You're just taking away the deflation that would happen. So um, yeah, as a narrative, it could be strong. Um, and probably ETH maxis hate me for even pointing out the truth of it all. But um, I don't really think that people are going to move away from bonds and CDs in their bank to go into so, ETH. So that was like, okay, Arthur Hayes, his bull case was basically that, right? That once you have staking live, that it will become like this institutional product that can be offered. And that is like the huge bull catalyst for it. Do you completely disagree with that? Yeah, it makes no sense. I mean, how do you how do you hedge the volatility of ETH? 
I mean, if, it, if it's an institutional product and you say, oh, this is just yield, you know, this is just yield, you're getting 5% yield. Well, somebody needs to short ETH mm-hmm. at the same time, you know, sh- short like some perp or some calendar future. Um, and presumably, if everyone's doing that, then the funding rate goes negative and the future's going to like, um, you know, the, the futures curve goes negative so that you're actually going to be able to realize less and less of that interest because of um, the, the futures curve. So there is not going to be a way to get yield for dollars. You're just getting yield for ETH. So if you want to hold ETH anyway, yeah, sure. Like, of course, like you better get your return because otherwise you're getting diluted <laughs> versus everyone else. Uh, but in, I, I can't see how it ends up being like a, a product that is like a risk-free yield product. On on ETH value long term, uh, I think you've mentioned that you think it will end up being traded like a commodity of sorts. Is is that you think the end game with ETH? Uh, there's two end games. It depends what ETH becomes. So if ETH becomes like a big cult, where like a lot of people around the world are just like you know, this is the economy that I want to participate in. This is like I want to earn ETH. I want to spend ETH. Like kind of what we've seen with NFTs, but much bigger, where it becomes mm-hmm. you know like a, a sizable GDP. Then ETH can be a currency, like it'll be just, you know, yen, euro, ETH. It, it could be like a currency. Um, another way is if it just ends up that all the world that we build, uh, which I'm skeptical about, this is not my opinion, but, you know, a lot of other people's opinion is everything will settle to the ETH layer one, because why wouldn't it? It has the most security. It's going to be the most valuable. So everything will be like an L2 using, you know, the main chain as, um, you know, a, a point that we'll be able to kind of... Uh, People check in from their other chains, make sure that like that's where the security is kept, so that you'll you'll be able to like roll back to the state if anything happens, and you'll be able to like uh, inherit the security. Mm-hmm. If that happens, then presumably the ETH block space on L1 becomes so valuable because so many protocols and, and companies are needing that for security that it becomes a commodity. It becomes a commodity good. People have to start hedging their their needs for ETH block space going forward. And then it's kind of like a, it's like chips, you know, like we, we look at silicon chips as a commodity. It'll be like something like that. Um, my personal view is always being that we are going to see a multi-chain world. We're going to see Cosmos ecosystem um, becoming bigger and bigger. We'll see more app chains. Uh, I strongly believe that the value that uh, will start getting created in crypto is not going to be accruing to L1s as much hmm. because it's just not, it's not the game theoretical outcome. Like the apps yeah. are going to be what matters. Like you need users now. Sure. You have all the tech. doesn't matter. No one gives a shit. Like you need users. You need millions and billions of users. Yeah. What do users care about? They care about their app. They don't care about like what, you know, zeros and ones are happening below that. So ultimately the apps are going to have to find ways to accrue value and they're going to want their app chain to exist so that they can, really take advantage of the fact that they are the one onboarding the millions of people. That was that was literally one of the next questions on my list was where do you think the value accrual will be long term? I'm with you. I think I mean you see it in web two, right? I mean most of the value accrual is at the app layer, not necessarily at the infrastructure layer. Like yeah, there's a lot of money in cloud services and these things, but ultimately, like you said, I think the app layer is where most of the value will be. Um any ideas on what types of apps those will be? I mean, we've seen some of the viral ones like Step In, some of these things that kind of start to get into people's lives. You know, um, they're upgraded versions, like Web3 web upgraded versions of apps that, you know, people might just use to 
for their everyday lives to to do tasks or to track themselves. Um, I think obviously the one thing, there's a few things actually. I mean, you know, social apps, um, being able to create content and get paid for that content. Everyone's trying to do it. Someone's going to succeed. I don't know who it is, but someone's going to be able to create a way where um, you're getting, you know, uh, incentivized for good content create, creation and, and that kind of creates a flywheel. Um, I think there'll be apps, um, you know, fintech is, is, is a space that is starting to get disrupted by crypto. Um, we'll start seeing what that looks like. One that's very clear that I've always thought is the clearest case is uh, loyalty miles, like loyalty points and, and that whole system. So there's some really good startups now that are targeting large companies and going to help them create like Web3 incentives with, you know, tokens and gamified and apps and mm -hmm. stuff like that. So I can't see that there's a situation where there's not going to be a world 10, 20 years from now where if I buy a certain, uh, you know, airplane ticket or clothing piece or whatever it, it is, that there's not going to be an app that's just going to kind of centralize and accrue all my incentives for, for choosing that one. Um, that, that has to happen. It, it's kind of much better than the existing systems of incentivizing. Uh, on the application side, like one of the things uh, I've thought a lot about, especially like in the West, you see that people don't really put a value on sovereignty as much um, in that they just kind of have faith in like, oh, the dollar's good. You know, there's nothing wrong with it. I don't really care that, you know, I might be being watched financially, you know, my money's in the bank. Do you think that like, because obviously one of the biggest, you know, benefits of like DeFi or things like this is, is sovereignty, right? You have more control, everything's transparent. Um, how, do, how do you think, do you think that people will have more of a uh, demand essentially for, for like sovereignty, even if like all else the same, one product, even if it's like a little more expensive or whatever, do you think they'll value that? Because I think that's one of the biggest problems right now is people just don't necessarily value that. On, yeah, on I, the think masses. Gonna, I absolutely, I, I see where you're coming from. I, I think that that will happen as a reaction to certain things that I've also predicted, which is um, CBDCs and their invasion of privacy. If, you know, a whole economy starts like we're seeing in China, getting onboarded onto a CBDC where the government is seeing what you're doing and all your transactions and starts to have control over how you can spend certain money that they give you and when you spend it and things like this, there will start to be like a social backlash that is much bigger than there is now. And people will start to, not everybody, you know, a lot of people will just be happy. And yeah, like just give me my my points and I'll just spend them on my games and, and they won't care. But there will be a lot of people that will hate the, the privacy invasion or just like the control, the loss of control. And as a reaction to that, we will see like more demand for privacy, sovereignty, um, you know, censorship proof um, forms of money and, and apps. Do you think that, I mean, obviously right now, everything on chain is pretty transparent. Do you think that we'll see like a bigger demand for privacy in crypto too? Yeah. I mean, everyone um, in crypto would like privacy. Um, in mm -hmm. some cases, it's very difficult, like with Bitcoin, you know, it's just the way it's, it's the rails of Bitcoin don't really allow it. Now, um, 
it's hard to say exactly like where the privacy is going to come in and where it's going to be demanded. I'm not sure that at, you know, something like Monero or, or, or Zcash um, is necessarily the use case. Um, but if it's added on to existing technology, like we've seen with Mimblewimble on Litecoin, like there's ways that, um, you know, Bitcoin can tap into some of that where privacy ends up being an added feature. No one's going to say no, uh, but governments could have a problem with it, uh, obviously. Okay. Uh, like you think ZK rollups will be the more like, I guess you said you, you let's go back for a second. Uh, you mentioned L2s versus other L1s. Are you bearish L2s or just kind of more neutral on them? Um, I'm only bearish in the sense that I, th I think like the hype is a bit too much. So I'm not bearish overall. I just think the Why? reality. Um, like I said, I think it's all about apps and I don't think that necessarily like all the big new important apps over the next five, 10 years will want to um, be on an L2, that L2s will stay as L2s. Um, they will want to accrue value to like, let's say you're optimism and you, you build a, you know, a great community, you manage to somehow achieve the business development needed to, you know, make all the activity happen there. Um, you know, at some point you're going to want a better deal. You'll go to, to your, uh, to your boss, Mr. ETH and, and just be like, Hey, like I'm the one kind of bringing in the, bringing in the bucks. I want to use my token for gas. I want to like, you know, I will, I think I they've already finding... proposed that actually. Right. So right. So you'll see like, right. So you'll, you'll see like scenarios where, um, you know, L2s that are successful will not necessarily want to just be like subordinate to ETH. Um, and there's there's going to be options for them, I think. Okay. Um, we're almost at an hour here, so I don't want to take too much of your time. I just want to finish on like a little more actionable uh, trades. Um, like right now, are, are you with Cellini Capital? Are you more like short-term trades, long-term bets? Like what do you guys do? We're in the two extremes. So we are market makers that just provide like ton of volume on all the exchanges at all times where we just try to you know give a fair price and mm -hmm. um you know tighten tighten the bid ask so that's very short term that's algorithmic at the same time we make a lot of venture investments and we get involved in governance and um kind of that's very long term so um you know that's that that's like really kind of trying to see like which projects uh will grow over like the next years so uh we have both sides view um, as far as like now that we've gone through a pretty major uh, crash, uh, where the bottom will be exactly, who knows. But how do you think about on the alt side? Are you looking at accumulating alts for the next cycle or how do you think about that? Um, I think about it very tactically. There is There are certain alts that have really good risk reward. So we just look at the risk reward. Uh, mm -hmm. One that we liked a lot was Lido. So, you know, we've been speaking with them. Um, they're, they're doing extremely well recently, which is um, makes it harder to add to your bags because it's already, you know, gone from, what was it, sub 50 cents and to, yeah. know, a lot higher. But that's yeah. obviously one that the risk reward where, you know, things go smoothly, ETH merges successfully, there is like a demand for staking. 
it, it's just such a God coin. <laughs> I think it got mm -hmm. Kobe called it. Um, that uh, that was a you know a really good opportunity. You, even if things don't work out, at least you feel like you got a good risk reward on it. Um, uh, on the flip side, you know, looking for an opportunity to short ETC. Mm -hmm. I think um, this is kind of where the game theory comes in that I alluded to earlier, where you know you saw Vitalik kind of praising ETC a little bit as you know it's it's a perfectly fine chain. He's just trying to get the miners to leave him alone, let his merge right. thing happen, and you guys just go over there. It's it's try to build an ecosystem there. And um, you saw one of the miners like Ant just tried to announce a ten million dollar fund for the ecosystem. That stuff is just junk. I mean, none of that's going to succeed. There's <laughs> We've seen it tried a million times and miners, I mean, we saw even Bitcoin Cash, they tried right. to do like, you know, there was like smart BCH. They, 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 they recently mm -hmm. had, had tried to do like a, a whole ecosystem push as well. Huge failure. And ultimately, ETC is going to go the same way. Um, I think Vitalik is trying to distract them. So ETC, I think, is going to be a, a good short opportunity, but you just can't put it on until, you know, you're ready because you don't want to get short squeezed um, right. on anything crazy. So that's a that's one we have our eye on, but it's you have to be very careful how you play it. As far as the other uh, like L1s, you mentioned Cosmos. Um, do you think like I mean Atom Token itself? Are you looking at something like that, or more the app chains that chains within Cosmos? Um, we try to stay away nowadays from things like Uni and um, even things like Atom that have potential for accumulating value, but have regulatory or other kind of uh, construction issues um, around their token, being able to accrue value that they're creating. Mm -hmm. um, you have to kind of time it right. And while we were very bull bullish on the Atom ecosystem and a lot of the, you know, you've seen DYDX, like some, some very important apps uh, are moving to, to their app chains. Um, we see that as a trend that will continue, but uh, it's unclear how something like Atom will do. On the other hand, um, you know things like Solana are starting to fight with Aptos, like other other chains. Mm -hmm. um, so we don't like Solana either. Um, Avalanche is having issues. It's an it's a it's at a pretty attractive price compared to where it was. Um, so it's something that. It's, it might be a good risk reward at, at certain points. Um, Phantom just staying away from, uh, you know, the, the whole ecosystem there is in a pretty bad shape. I mean, even things like Tomb and, and, and all these kind of games that were built around it have, have not managed to repeg. Um, so um, that's not one that looks very promising. Um, and finally, I'll say like, you know, People should keep an open mind. Like there will be new L1s, not just the ones that we've seen right now, but there will be new L1s coming out over the next, you know, one, two, three, four, five years. And some of them will manage to solve various scaling issues and, and various other issues. So, um, you know, as an investment opportunity, I think being able to identify quickly, like which one is, is actually, you know, changing the ball game uh, could be amazing. Yeah, you know, DJ and Spartan on Twitter said that he the best product the L1s have is the speculation aspect that because you could be the next ETH or whatever, you you can bid something so high like what Solana got to like 70 80 billion market cap something like that. Um 
yeah, that was my final like question, like risk reward. I mean, is it better to just bid new L ones or maybe you think bid some of these older ones? Yeah, I mean, he, he's definitely right. And but another thing, another thing he said. I mean, what I've been seeing on the private side is even the new L ones that are just now not publicly known, but are kind of in construction. Their mm -hmm. seed round, because of that exact reason, like they can say, well, this could be ETH. So yeah, our seed round that we're just starting out is 100 plus. You know, 200. It, it, it's already like in nine figures. And obviously, that you know that takes away a lot of the multiple that you can get. Versus, you know, what Solana went for um, when, when that was just starting out at Sense. So it's not as a slam, as a slam dunk as, as it used to be. Um, but if 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 one of them does indeed become a very important uh, chain, it it could be quite good to get on it early. But it's not it's not an easy game to play. If you had to bet on one, which one would it be? To to compete with ETH. Yeah. Or at least um, to be like. Uh, like a, a solid number three behind Bitcoin and ETH. Yeah, it's it's too early to tell. That's that's kind of like the exciting part, I guess, is that it remains to be seen. I, I don't have a strong view. All right, all right. Okay, well, I've uh, held you long enough. Thank you so much for your time today. This was great. I could ask you a million more questions, but uh, I'll let you go. Um, anything you wanted to uh, plug before we go? Uh, no, that's it. I mean, I... I uh... I'm on Twitter, Game Theorizing, and um, I have new Medium articles coming out. It's not going to be about Ohm. It'll be about other stuff. Um, it'll be about, you know, what, what the lessons have been from this last cycle. Um, I'm eager to kind of hey, get into that. Yeah. I just want to say I was with you on Luna from the beginning. I was very clear in this podcast that Luna was a Ponzi. So I just, I, you know, I just want to be clear. I, I'm not always wrong about these things. <laughs> I learned my lessons. That's the most important thing. Just keep growing. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I'll, uh, I'll link Jordy's Twitter uh, in the description for everybody. And uh, yeah, hope to have you on maybe in another uh, six months or so. We'll see where we're at. Maybe we can have you on again. Let's do it. All right. Thank you so much.